Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are headed to Jamaica, which is not a place place we've talked that much about on the show. (laughs) Uh, Even in the past archive, not a whole lot about Jamaica. So we're headed to Jamaica to talk about a pair of wars between the Jamaican Maroons and the British colonial government. For listeners who are not familiar with that term, Maroons are Africans and people of African ancestry who escaped enslavement and established communities, usually in remote and hard-to-access parts of the Caribbean and some of the Americas, sometimes also intermarrying with the local indigenous population. The term probably comes from the Spanish Cimarron for wild or untamed, or maybe the French Marron, which meant brown. Uh, and although particularly Cimarron was initially used to describe wild animals and escaped livestock, it's one that maroon communities still in existence today use to describe themselves. In Jamaica, specifically, the word maroon came into use around 1670. Some of the maroon communities during the days of the transatlantic slave trade didn't survive very long due to disease and starvation and the efforts of slave catchers and others to find and capture and destroy. But places that had a combination of an enslaved labor pool and remote, inaccessible territory were likely to become home to a maroon settlement. And that settlement was typically heavily influenced by the African and indigenous cultures of the people living there. There were, and in some cases still are, maroon communities all over the Caribbean, as well as parts of North, Central, and South America, anywhere that the terrain was difficult. So this included the Great Dismal Swamp in Virginia and North Carolina, the bayous of the Deep South, uh, Suriname's jungles and the mountains and ravines of Jamaica, which is where we are talking about today. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, Jamaica was inhabited by the Taino people, who were also called the Arawakans. These indigenous people lived through a combination of agriculture and fishing and also inhabited other parts of the Caribbean besides just Jamaica. We really don't have a thorough sense of their history or culture in Jamaica, though. Christopher Columbus arrived in Jamaica on May 5th, 1494, during his second voyage to the West Indies. The first permanent Spanish settlement followed in Jamaica 15 years later. The Spanish quickly enslaved the Taino people who did not survive long thanks to smallpox and other introduced diseases, warfare, and essentially being worked to death. Even as the Taino population was driven to extinction, the Spanish population in Jamaica didn't grow particularly quickly. By 1655, there were about 1,500 Spanish people living on Jamaica, and they had an enslaved workforce of between 500 and 1,500 people. The estimates on that number vary, which is why it's so wide. And about 100 of those enslaved were Tainos, who were, by this point, the last of their people at least the last of their people in Jamaican. They basically were driven to extinction all over the Caribbean, but the timing varies from one island to another. In addition to the eradication of the indigenous population, Spain did not make particularly good use of Jamaica. They had hoped to find gold on the island, but didn't. And once they gave up on the gold mine idea, they basically approached Jamaica as something they were occupying so nobody else could have it, not as an actual valuable resource to exploit. Consequently, that same year, which was 1655, 
When an English fleet arrived off the coast of Spanish Town, the island had very little in the way of defenses. The fleet, commanded by Admiral Sir William Penn and General Robert Venables, had been directed by Oliver Cromwell to uproot Spain's presence in the Caribbean. Even though they had close to 40 ships and 8,000 men, the fleet had just failed to drive the Spanish out of San Domingo. Jamaica, still kind of cobbled together and poorly defended after almost 150 years of Spanish occupation, really seemed like a much easier target. And it was! Spanish colonists, many of them, immediately fled north to Cuba, leaving their enslaved workforce behind. The Spanish colonists who stayed withdrew from Spanish town and other settlements that were under immediate threat from the English, and they fled to more remote outposts, or in some cases hid in less hospitable parts of the island's interior. The enslaved people who had been left behind, some of them explicitly set free, but others essentially abandoned, armed themselves and retreated deeper into Jamaica's interior, where they would form the first permanent maroon communities on the island. They hunted and began at least some crop cultivation, but they also survived through harassing and raiding the English plantations and settlements. The Maroons organized themselves in these earliest years into three bands. One of them we really don't know much at all about, but the other two each had their own leaders who made their way into the historical record. There was Lubolo, a.k.a. Juan Lubol, or sometimes Juan de Bolas. He was the head of one faction. And then Juan de Serres was head of the other. Don Christopher Isasi, the last Spanish governor in Jamaica, attempted to mount a resistance to the English invasion. And he looked to the Maroons under Lubolo for aid. The Maroons were, at this point, a much bigger threat to the English than the Spanish were. There were more of them, they were better armed, and they were increasingly far more familiar with the island's more mountainous territory. And they were becoming adept at guerrilla warfare. While Ubolo's men were not at all willing to go back to being enslaved, they did think that it would be better if the Spanish retook control of Jamaica rather than staying in the hands of the English, because to use a basic figure of speech, the Spanish were the devil they knew. Over the next five years, Spain made several attacks on British plantations and settlements. In all the ones that have made their way into the historical record, Maroons were present as well. And in addition to aiding with the attacks on the British, the Maroons were also acting as guides and guards to the Spanish in the Jamaican backcountry, in some cases even supplying their food. By 1658, English Governor Edward Doyley was fed up with the perpetual skirmishes with the lingering Spanish presence in Jamaica. So he went to Lubolo himself, offering him and his people freedom and self-governance if they switched sides. Lubolo, recognizing that the fighting was starting to jeopardize the crops that had become the island's primary food source and really uh, finding it appealing that he would officially have self-governance and liberty, agreed. Although the Spanish presence in Jamaica ended by 1660 after the English and the Maroons teamed up against them, the island would not be formally ceded to to the English for another decade. Lobolo and his people were given their promised freedom and 30 acres of land apiece, with Lobolo named magistrate and his fighting force becoming known as the Black Militia. He worked with the English for roughly three years, at which point someone, possibly Juan de Serres, killed him, viewing his shift of allegiance from Spain to England as a betrayal. Yeah, I found one source that said definitely that's who it was. 
And then I found another source that had all this information about Wanda Saris and did made no mention of it at all, which seems like a huge thing to leave out if it's that's if that's how it went down. The first Maroon War in Jamaica grew out of England's efforts to establish its governance once it had gotten rid of the Spanish, as well as shifts in the island's use of enslaved labor. And we will talk about that after a quick sponsor break. In 1662, after Jamaica was free of the last of the Spanish stragglers and England was attempting to establish a colonial government, it was obvious that there needed to be some kind of consideration of the Maroon population. They were certainly not going to return to being enslaved, but their presence was also outside the bounds of English society. Eventually, instructions to this newly created English government read, quote, give encouragements as as securely you may to such Negroes, natives, and others as shall submit to live peaceable under his majesty's obedience and in due submission to the government of the island. The peace between the English and the Maroons didn't last, though. By 1670, Juan de Serres and his band had been outlawed and placed under a 30-pound bounty apiece. And at the same time, England took a completely different approach to the island than Spain had. It moved toward establishing huge sugar plantations and importing enslaved Africans as labor. Yeah, there were lots and lots of enslaved people who were imported into Jamaica as a result of this decision, which uh, basically... England was like, man, we can grow so much sugar here and make so much money. Whereas Spain had sort of been like, if we have this, no one else can have it. <laughs> it didn't do a lot at all. For the next few decades, uh, as these plantations grew and their enslaved labor forces grew as well, Jamaica saw a huge series of uprisings by the people who were enslaved on the sugar plantations in 1673, 200 enslaved people rose up against a planter, killed him and several other white people, plundered surrounding plantations, and then retreated into the mountains. More revolts followed in 1678, 1685, 1686, 1690, and 1696. It was basically an ongoing series of, of uprisings on the plantations. Simultaneously, the Maroon population grew, both through the survivors of successful revolts and people who just managed to escape in the chaos. And it grew further in 1669 or 1670 when a slave ship wrecked off the coast of Jamaica and the people who were able to make it to the shore mostly wound up moving into the interior and taking refuge with the Maroons. Soon, Jamaica was home to two broad groups of Maroons, the Windward Maroons, who lived on the eastern part of the island, and the Leeward Maroons, who lived in the northwest part of the island. In spite of malaria, tropical illness, heat, a devastating earthquake and tsunami in 1692, and being constantly harassed by the French, the Maroons, and pirates congregating in Port Royal, the English presence in Jamaica continued to grow. However, the white population was progressively more outnumbered by its enslaved workforce. By 1703, there were about 45,000 enslaved Africans on Jamaica. Only about 10% of the people in Jamaica were white, and in some places, the ratio was 25 to 1. 
By 1722, English sugar plantations had spread over most of the arable land in Jamaica. They had started to cut off the scattered maroon settlements from one another, disrupting trade lines and lines of communication. And because the British planters and slave owners had become increasingly prosperous, most of them had started sending their children back to England to be educated, and then they followed themselves. So Jamaica basically became a nation of absentee landlords, with plantations that were run by agents and attorneys under the rule of a governor who was really the crown's representative on the island, and a system of laws that either ignored or disadvantaged the maroon population. According to Maroon Oral History, the uprisings, skirmishes, and raids on plantations we've already talked about were all part of their first war against England, which they waged for 80 years. But from the British point of view, it was a lot narrower, starting only in the late 1720s when they started making a more orchestrated effort to find Maroon settlements and conquer the people in them. In this more orchestrated effort, the British had a lot working against them. Because they were so vastly outnumbered by their enslaved workforce and they didn't have like an official military support provided by the crown to help them in this effort, they had to train enslaved men as gunners and also use their enslaved workforce as porters when searching and fighting against the Maroons. Unsurprisingly, a lot of these men abandoned their posts, taking their weapons and their cargo with them to join the Maroons. So there was like a lot of desertion that also robbed the English of uh, their supplies and weapons. In my head, this plays out as such like a Benny Hill sort of confused, you know, just cannot get anything organized and like to go according to plan situation. Yeah, there's a, there, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this episode is that there's kind of a perception that, uh, that during slavery, there was not a lot of resistance against slave owners. <laughs> this is an example of how that was false. Uh, and <laughs> how the British were just continually, like, constantly being raided and constantly losing, uh, you know, the, the, the people they had trained to, to, be soldiers in this context and like just being harassed and, uh, and bothered continually by the maroon population. And another disadvantage that they had was that by this point, the maroons were living in some of Jamaica's most inaccessible areas and they were deeply familiar with the terrain. They combined this knowledge with guerrilla warfare techniques, including the use of camouflage, ambushes, catching people in crossfire, communication through horns and drums, and extensive espionage work, including among enslaved people on the plantations themselves. One of the Maroons' key strategists was a woman known as Nanny, also Queen Nanny or Granny Nanny. She was from the Windward Maroons. Uh, Nanny described herself as Coromanti, which was the English word for people from the Ashanti Empire in what's now Ghana. Although there's not a lot conclusively known about her biography, she's credited with having masterminded the strategy for the Windward Maroons' resistance during the First Maroon War. In addition to her strategic work, Nanny was also an Obia woman. Obia is a belief system that involves the influence of spirits in daily life, as well as medicine and healing, ritual and magic. Today, she is the only female national hero of Jamaica, and her image is on the Jamaican $500 note. 
1732, the British took Nanny Town, which was named, of course, for Nanny. The Windward Maroons recaptured it in 1733, and the English conquered it once again in 1734 after a massive five-day battle. Nanny herself was rumored to have been killed in 1733, but she was, at this point, actually still living. She wasn't... When it came to, to making negotiations with the Windward Maroons, uh, it, those generally happened with, um, male captains in the, in the Maroon society. Uh, but Nanny was the person that had, like, the absolute respect, uh, and influence in terms of how they were doing the fighting. After the fall of Nanny Town, the survivors split up. About 300 of them, including children, made a 100-mile march to try to meet up with the Leeward Maroons uh, to a town under the leadership of a man named Kudjo. But the British tried to attack and disperse the column before they reached that town, but they failed, and they became worried of what would happen once they had joined forces with the Leeward Maroons. However, the refugees from Nannytown weren't welcome in the Leeward settlement, partly because there wasn't enough food to support that many newcomers. Additionally, though, Kudjo, while he had a reputation for being fierce, also had a reputation of being somewhat ambivalent about the British. He was definitely willing to raid British plantations when it suited him and to fight back against the British incursions into his territory. But he was a little more pragmatic as far as thinking it was probably not going to be possible to completely drive the British off of Jamaica, which is what some of the Windward Maroons seem to really want to do. He was more interested in securing freedom and autonomy for himself and his people, even if that meant that the British were still on the island. So he didn't entirely agree with the Windward Maroons' more aggressive and continual attacks on the British. As the Windward Maroons, who hadn't fled to Kudjo's people, regrouped, and Kudjo's men took a cautious but less aggressive stance, there was a brief lull in fighting in 1736. In 1737, the Windward refugees went back toward Nannytown, feeling both unwelcome by the Leeward Maroons and anxious to return to the fight with the British. When the British tried to put a stop to this conflict in 1739, they perhaps unsurprisingly, given his previous behavior, started with Kudjo and the Leeward Maroons, not with Nanny uh, and her captains and the Windward Maroons. We'll talk about how the first war came to an end and then also wound up leading to the second one after another quick sponsor break. In late March of 1739, Governor Edward Trelawney commissioned Colonel John Guthrie to negotiate a peace treaty to end the Maroon War. Guthrie started with Captains Kudjo and Akampong of the Leeward Maroons. Trelawney himself was eager enough to get this over with that instead of just staying uh, in town to wait for a treaty to be brought to him, he hiked out to a vantage point near the negotiation so he could be on hand to sign the treaty as soon as it was finalized. Kudjo signed the 15-point treaty on March 1st of 1739. The treaty put an end to hostilities between the British and the Leeward Maroons, and it granted them freedom and liberty along with 1,500 acres of land in northwest Jamaica, stretching out from Trelawney Town, the main Leeward settlement, through what's known as cockpit country. The Leeward Maroons had the right to hunt on the island as long as it was not within three miles of a white settlement. 
They also had the right to plant crops and raise livestock and sell what they grew and raised at the market as long as they had a license to do it. The treaty also offered the Leeward Maroons some legal protections and assigned them some obligations. The Maroons had the right to petition officers and magistrates for justice in the event that a white person did them harm. The Leeward Maroons could also handle justice for crimes that their own people committed as long as those crimes were not severe enough to warrant the death penalty, in which case that was supposed to be handed over to the British court. They had to have an annual meeting with Jamaica's commander-in-chief, who was British, as and two white people whose roles were not really defined in this treaty uh, were to live with the Maroons in Trelawney Town. I'm imagining that these were almost like ambassadors who were living, but they d- it didn't really specify what they were supposed to be doing in this treaty. It was also up to the Leeward Maroons to maintain roads between their settlements and the British towns. Some of the treaty's terms instantly earned the Leeward Maroons a lot of enemies. They had to, quote, take, kill, suppress, or destroy rebels on the island, which usually meant other Maroons. But more controversially, quote, if any Negroes shall hereafter run away from their master or owners and fall into Captain Cudjoe's hands, they shall immediately be sent back to the chief magistrate of the next parish where they are taken. And those that bring them are to be satisfied for their trouble as legislature shall appoint. In other words, following the signing of this treaty, if people escaped enslavement and made their way to Kudjo in the Leeward Maroons, the Maroons would send them back. This made Jamaica's enslaved population incredibly angry. And this was the case for some of Kudjo's own people, too. One faction attempted a last-minute coup to keep the treaty from going into effect, but when Kudjo heard about it, He arrested four of the ringleaders and turned them over to the governor, especially considering how much uh, maroon survival until this point had evolved, had involved raiding plantations and liberating people who were enslaved there. People saw this as a huge betrayal, quite understandably. And like that continues still today. The governor, recognizing that the deep anger stemming from these provisions had the potential to make the situation on the plantations worse instead of better, sent troops to one of the plantations where dissent had been the loudest, severely punished the people enslaved there, and executed many of them. For the most part, the Windward Maroons did not even know that these negotiations had happened once those treaties were signed. But once they learned about it, they realized that between the British and the Leeward Maroons, they were vastly outnumbered. So under duress, they signed their own very similar treaty on December 23rd. Uh, the, the captain from the Windward Maroons who signed this was a man named Quau. Things were relatively peaceful between the British and the Maroons for more than 50 years. But the British population on Jamaica, as before, continued to grow, including taking over land that was supposed to be allotted to the Maroons. Uh, skirmishes started to flare up again, and the Maroons stopped returning escapees from the plantations, and they started raiding those plantations again. Then, two Maroons were convicted of stealing pigs, and they were publicly flogged. This punishment was carried out by the foreman of the prison in Montego Bay, who was black. And it was done in front of some people who had escaped from enslavement who the Maroons had returned. 
And watching from the prison, these returned escapees taunted and jeered the two men as they were being punished. The Maroons' anger over this incident was twofold. They felt, number one, under the terms of the previous treaty, they should have been able to handle doling out their own punishments. And the way the punishment had been carried out was also particularly humiliating. This time, the conflict was much shorter. It lasted only about a year. Governor Alexander Lindsay ordered the Maroons to stand down by August 12th, 1795, but nearly all of them refused. He extended the deadline to December 21st and then to January 1st of the following year. Finally, it took the recruitment of additional forces and a shipment of hunting dogs brought in from Cuba to finally get the Maroons to surrender. Yeah, that previous conflict had been a lot, lot, lot longer but this one was a lot more vicious. <laughs> um, and that surrender finally did, happened in March of 1796, although many of the Maroons didn't actually lay down their arms until a little later. Even when the fighting was over, Governor Lindsay considered the situation way too precarious to allow the Maroons to return home. He was particularly worried about the ones from uh, Trelawney Town which was the largest maroon settlement in Jamaica. So he boarded 500 Trelawney Town uh, maroons onto two transport vessels that were waiting in the harbor by Port Royal with the plan of deporting them. In this, he had no destination in mind, uh, no plan, and no authority from the British government or the crown. Eventually, he decided on Nova Scotia, where, after the Revolutionary War, enslaved Africans who had fought for the British had been sent. The governor got a deportation law passed by Jamaica's House of Assembly on May 1st of 1796. Even though this plan sounds very bizarre in a lot of ways, he was completely certain that the government was going to be like, yeah, you do that because this is a bad situation. Meanwhile, the Trelawney Town Maroons from the transport petitioned to be released under the grounds that they had laden down their arms under the condition that they would not be deported. At first, they suggested that they be given some other territory besides Trelawney Town that would be further removed from British settlements, such as deep into the Blue Mountains. When that failed, they instead requested deportation to another Caribbean island. Instead, the transport set sail for Nova Scotia on May 8th. The governor wrote to Sir John Wentworth, governor of Nova Scotia, on June 3rd to inform him of the incoming 500 deportees. The transports landed in Halifax on July 22nd and 23rd. Uh, Lindsay's letter to Wentworth arrived in August. Of course, having had no notice that any of this was about to happen, there was not a lot that Governor Wentworth could do about it once these two surprise transports of Jamaican Maroons arrived in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And that first winter after their arrival in Halifax was particularly brutal. Even if it had not been particularly brutal, the... The comparison of winter in Halifax, Nova Scotia to literally any season in Jamaica <laughs> could almost not be more opposite. Yeah, it would have been brutal to them even if it had been Nova Scotia's mildest winter on record. So they wound up petitioning to be relocated to somewhere with a more familiar climate. And those petitions were ongoing for three and a half years. 
They were finally sent to Freetown, Sierra Leone, which was, by then, home to many of the enslaved Africans that the British had freed during the Revolutionary War, who had also previously been sent to Nova Scotia. This whole Nova Scotia plan is so bizarre to me. Yes, (laughs) that's all I have. And Sierra Leone is a whole other story in and of itself, so we're not going to dig into that, but Uh, no, yeah. That's a whole tale that could be its own episode or episodes. Yeah, this is one of those things where we we have to stop the story somewhere. Uh, Sierra Leone and its settlement by previously enslaved people uh, did become the model for later attempts to settle Liberia. Um, So there is some similar history elsewhere in our archive about that. And as we noted at the top of the show... There are still multiple maroon settlements in Jamaica today, and the people living there generally continue to observe a culture and traditions that have roots uh, in Africa, particularly the Akan people in what used to be known as the Gold Coast and is now Ghana. And there are also influences from what's now Togo, Benin, Nigeria, and Madagascar. So as we uh, sort of referenced earlier in the show, this is an example of how uh, we don't hear about it as much in history classes, but there was ongoing resistance to the institution of slavery for a long time in places um, that it was practiced in the Americas and the Caribbean, um, especially before the signing of that treaty that so many people viewed as a betrayal. I watched an, an interview as I was preparing uh, for this um, with some of the Jamaican Maroons living today, and I don't remember which African nation their interviewer was from, but he asked very pointed questions <laughs> about that part of the treaty, um, uh, about like whether they agreed that h- having peace with the English was worth than saying that they were going to uh, return people who escaped from the plantations, and then also whether if that were happening today, they would have made the same decisions. He was very uh, direct in his his questions about that. Do you have a little bit of listener mail to polish this one off? I sure do. Uh, It is from Jade, and it is about our recent episode on Ed Roberts and the independent living movement. Jade says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I recently listened to your podcast about Ed Roberts. I just wanted to let you guys know that you do amazing work and make a difference for people, including myself. Uh, I'm going to skip a little bit of personal detail, but Jade writes about uh, being... Diagnosed with a fairly rare disorder that causes a defect in collagen. Uh, to continue, as a result of this defect, I'm extremely flexible and prone to numerous injuries. I suffer from chronic pain every day and can't do much of the things that a normal person would be able to do. What makes this disorder so hard isn't just the pain, because this is, but because this is an invisible illness. There's not any symptoms you can see from the outside. People can't see how much pain I feel. Since I've been diagnosed, my condition has only gotten worse. First, I had to listen. First, I had to learn how to use a cane, then a wheelchair, which I'm still getting used to. Coming to terms with my disability has been extremely hard. Having people stare at me to be rude or because I quote don't look like I'm disabled is something I struggle with daily. I thought Mr. Roberts' attitude about the staring was great and something I should learn to copy. It's all too easy to be anxious about it or get upset with someone. I wanted to tell you that this episode was incredibly moving to me. I never learned about Mr. Roberts in any of my history classes. Sometimes living with a disability feels very lonely. It can feel like you're the only one who 
You're the only ones who have ever gone through what you have. That's why what you ladies do is so important. You give people like me someone to relate to. You make us feel like we're not alone. Thank you for all that you do. You guys are amazing, and I am so thankful for people like you. You make the days that I can't get out of bed so much more bearable. Please keep making podcasts like you are now. We need all the role models we can get. With love, Jade. Thank you so much, Jade. This letter, number one, incredibly kind um, and thoughtful and moved us both a whole lot when we got it. Uh, and then number two, like this is one of the reasons that I want to talk about disability history on the show so much. Um, I, I feel like we get a lot of requests for some of the worst parts of disability history. Uh, but I think it's also really important to give more visibility to people whose lives were about living with a disability, uh, and representing that aspect of it. Um, because while yes, there are a lot of parts of disability that are, or, or of disability history that are horrifying today, uh, we also have a lot of stories, um, of basically people in history who were disabled or became disabled, um, that like that's a part of their story and a, a normal part of the human experience, um, and not, like a a sideshow of horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where I I there's part of me that is uh, the naive part of me wants to go. Of course, there have always been disabled people. Why is this so weird? But I recognize that there has also been a lot of effort to not discuss any of those things. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm so glad that Jade got something out of that that was tracy's wonderful pick and her fabulous research so well and a a wonderful wonderful suggestion from a listener i think her name was Alyssa. she sent us a note to remind (laughs) after i was like i didn't write that down and i should have yeah you and i have talked about uh wanting to it's, it's a tricky balance to strike on the show in terms of disability history because we really want to avoid stories that come off as being inspiration for non-disabled people (laughs) Right. Uh, and w- while it is important to talk about, uh, the, how things have progressed and how things used to be, and a lot of times the way things used to be were horrifying, um, I, it's also really important to have representation that disabled people have always been here. <laughs> uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash History, And our Instagram is at History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is howstuffworks.com, and find information on just about anything your heart desires. And you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and find show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have worked on and an archive of every episode ever. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 